And uh, today we're going to uh, finish up a series that we started at the beginning of this month called You've Got This. And you've probably already picked up on what we're talking about today. We're talking about love. Because love is the defining trait. It's the mark. It's the character distinctive of the life that God desires us to have. That uh, grit and humility and patience, all those things are good. But the thing that is to be the defining mark of a Christian is love. And I recognize even in the midst of discussing love that we wanted to kind of start the conversation before I even stepped up of triggering a lot of thoughts and memories. Because here's the challenge. Love is a word with baggage attached. No one steps into a conversation about love without baggage already being handled. Whether it was what defined love for you growing up or what didn't define love for you growing up. Some of us may have grown up in homes where uh, you heard I love you twice from your father. Some of you may have heard I love you so much that it was just a filler word without any meaning at all. And that it goes beyond just relationships and love and this idea of like intimacy. It, It bleeds into friendships. That we are a culture that's obsessed with the word, but no one ever stops to define it. No one ever stops to say, well, what are we talking about? We're using the same word, but I'm not sure we have the same definition. Because for you, it's, a, it's just an emotion that comes and goes. And for me, it's a commitment I want to make. And so for us to di- dialogue about love as a distinctive, as the mark, I think it's worth Unpacking because I don't think it's a good thing for us to walk out of the room and be in the same place where England was this week, where I don't know if you saw after they voted to leave, the number two most searched phrase on Google in the United Kingdom is what is the EU? And so here, I mean, here in the midst of a company, like a country that's voting to leave the EU, the most, second most searched phrase is what is the EU? Like, what is the thing that we just left? Because maybe we should have known that beforehand. And so for us to discuss love, I want us to start with the one who defined it, who standardized it, who resembled it, who modeled it, who called us to it, because it's his definition that ultimately is helpful to us. And I think the ancient cultures in which a lot of the what we call the Bible was born out of, they, they had a little bit more word choice when it comes to love. They could, uh, the Greeks, and for example, uh, which is kind of the culture that most of the New Testament um, arose out of, had four different words for love, which makes it a whole lot easier because I can love chihuahuas and I can love my daughter and I, I can love the Red Sox, but the descriptor, the definition of that love is, is different where the Greeks said, you know what, let's have four different words that reflect the nature and the character of love. And when Jesus unpacks love for his disciples, his followers, his understudies, he uses a certain kind of word. He pulls from that culture. And it's that word that I think is meant to be the distinctive trait for our lives. It's this one characteristic that God has emphatically said both that he is and that he desires for us to show. Now, here's the beautiful disclaimer I want to give you. And if you're in this room today, maybe this is your first time, or maybe you're not even sure if you believe in Christianity. This is one of those kind of messages where you get to sit back and you get to hear what, what is a Christian's life meant to reflect? What is a Christian distinctive on love? That you can just take notes and begin to look for it in those who claim to follow Jesus. 
For those who are Christians who say, I want to follow, I follow Christ, I follow his teachings, I follow his life, and I believe in who he is, then this is to call us to what should be the norm of our life. To be the common kind of operating system for how we interact with people and how we live our lives. Because I believe that love can be the defining trait of your life and my life. That Jesus would not have cast that vision were it not able to be true. I think for many of us, it happens, the breakdown happens in that we uh, have lost the definition. That we've lost the ideal. And in doing so, we can step into circumstances that we believe loves an emotion, then we're, we're chained to it. However, the emotion leads is where I'm going to go. So it's, if I feel like loving them, then I can love them. But Jesus comes and redefines love for us, and it's in his definition that I think we can learn how to develop love. That you and I can develop love as a defining trait of our lives. In fact, just by two sentences, Jesus speaks right before he's crucified. I think we see a picture of what it looks like to receive his love and to reflect his love in a way that not only changes who we are, but changes the world around us. Because would you not agree that the world needs more love? That your relationships need more love. Your workspace, your family, your enemies need more love. And this country in the midst of an election season needs more love. And Jesus in John 13, I believe, gives us that path. Um, If you have the Encounter Church app that uh, Jason referenced earlier, uh, you can click on sermon notes and it'll actually go ahead and fire and it'll have the two verses that we're going to um, engage with today. And uh, if, you, if you don't have, uh, if, you can't, if you're having trouble pulling it up, it'll be on the screen behind me. But I'll give you a little bit of backdrop. It's helpful to understand this, this letter called the book of John before we read it. So John is the fourth of the Gospels. And the Gospels were the, the life and the message and kind of the history of Jesus's ministry, who he was. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the first three letters written to kind of describe Jesus's ministry, his life, his teachings. And they come all within a couple of decades of Jesus being crucified and being raised from the dead. So the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of similarities because they were written in the same time frame to the same type of people. People who were exploring faith. People who wanted to know more about faith. Because Christianity had just started and it was just beginning to spread. John's letter is different. John writes his letter almost 40, 50 years after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. John's letter is written towards the end of his life. He's the last remaining disciple, the last understudy that's still living. All the original followers of Jesus have passed away. And John's looking at the scope. He's looking at kind of the the characteristics of where Christianity is because now for the first time in human history, there are people being born into families of Christians. And he writes this letter to the second generation. He's like, I don't want you to lose the heart. I don't want you to lose the, the, the motive for this thing called Christianity. The, the first generation interacted with people who had interacted with Jesus, and this rubbed off on them. But I want to make sure I write it down so that you get the full weight of who he was. In fact, John was so obsessed um, with characterizing who Jesus was and living out that, that one of his nicknames was the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, John was the youngest 
of all the followers and understudies. When Jesus gathered these 12 men to be his understudies, which was a common practice in that day for rabbis to pick kind of protégés to train, that John's the youngest. He's probably somewhere 10, 11, 12, 13. He's a really young guy. And Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus kind of becomes this older brother to him and takes care of him in in ways that the other guys didn't. They had jobs. They were already kind of engaging. John's the young one. And Jesus treats and, and engages with him in a way that John's kind of like characteristic of his life. is like, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And we know because John mentored other guys who wrote prolifically in early history that their writings still characterize that every time John was engaging with a, a new church or whenever he was leaving a new church, the thing that he was constantly saying to him is you got to love one another. you got to love. This was his passion. And so John sets the stage in this gospel. He finishes, in fact, he finishes this whole entire letter with this pretty common uh, like oratorial device, this, this thing that would have been um, pretty normal for readers or listeners in that day. It was called a farewell address. It was this idea that as a leader was getting ready to depart, he would leave his final instructions, his final teachings. He would say things that he hadn't had a chance to say. We kind of have a version of it today, and maybe in writing and movies, that's the idea of that deathbed confession where someone's, right before they take their final breath, they're giving you everything. The most important things. And Jesus, John kind of frames Jesus' last night as a farewell address. So from John 13 to John 17, you have Jesus' final words because 17 paves the way for him in the garden where he gets arrested. And less than 24 hours after Jesus speaks these words, he's dead in a grave. And John's wanting to capture it. And so in John 13, 34, 35, Jesus has just washed their feet. Their feet are now clean and dripping with the water put there by their master and teacher in an act that in that time and day, only the lowest servant would wash the feet of the people gathered. Like not just the slave, but the lowest slave was the foot washer. And Jesus has just washed their feet. Their feet are dripping. They're still taking in the moment that just happened. And Jesus says to them, a new command I give you, verse 34, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. After this really profound moment, Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. Now what's interesting is for, uh, for his followers that day, and maybe for you if you happen to grow up in church, uh, what would instantly have pinged is this isn't new. Way back in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible was the command to love. But Jesus says, a new command I give you because the old metric... The old metric of that command was love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is critical. Jesus is redefining the command because it is a new command. Where the old metric was how you loved yourself, the new metric was how he loved them. He raises the bar in a way that's incredible. And those simple words, those five simple words, totally revolutionize their idea of love. He looks at them and says, I am your definition 
of love. I am your example. I am the new metric and I am the new standard. And so how did He love? If He says your command to love is the way I love, then how did He love? Well, right before this this statement being made, we see Him wash the feet of the people gathered in the room. So we see that His love has this element of serving. That He's a servant. He doesn't walk into the room thinking, what can I get from them? He walks into the room thinking, what can I do for them? He comes in with a heart that isn't about what He can leech out of everyone. It's what He can leave behind for them. We know that it's also selfless because He's not consumed by His own concerns. Even though the pressing in of what's about to happen. Because as Christians, we believe Jesus is in fact God. And we believe, according to what the Bible says, that He knew what was about to happen. And because of that, He has the full weight of knowing in a few hours I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to be crucified. The worst form of capital punishment in human history. And yet, in the midst of all that, He still selflessly serves them. We know it's sacrificial because 24 hours later, He dies for them. And He dies for us. And that Jesus sets up this picture of love that is powerful. And here's the most powerful part. When you love as you love yourself, you tend to love people like you. Don't you? It's really easy to love those people who are like you that you like. Jesus' love wasn't selective. He loved His enemies and His friends. I mean, his last, one of His last breaths as He's dying on the cross is like, Father, forgive them. And who's the them? The, the them are the, the men with the hammer and the nails who just crucified Him. The people who called for Him to die. Like That's the type of love demonstrated by Jesus. That it doesn't place labels or distinctives. It loves. That it's this powerful picture. But there's this one word that I think is critical for us to be able to love well. And it's almost counterintuitive. But it says, as I have loved you. He wasn't giving them some theological idea. He wasn't painting some picture. This wasn't religious teaching. They had experienced His love. Their feet were literally still dripping from His love. They had just witnessed. And John, writing this decades later, writes it with the fullness of understanding that He would die for me because of what I had done. He would sacrifice Himself so that I could have life. Like that is in John's mind as he's scribbling this new command that John would repeat over and over and it would fill his writings in the future letters called 1st and 2nd and 3rd John that's towards the end of the New Testament. This theme of love keeps coming up because John was consumed by how Jesus had loved him and us. And this is where maybe for some of us there's a disconnect. Because Jesus isn't talking about a religious notion. He's talking about something that you experience. He said, I've loved you. And I don't think it was just for them. I think it was for us too. That for many of us, we can see God as distant and cold, angry. We can see a God who's indifferent to us and our sufferings and our lives and our struggles and the details and the nuances. And yet Jesus is speaking to His disciples and says, no, 
I have loved you. And they say, yes, yes, you have. They'd experience this love. Um, this past week, I uh, was on the couch uh, and kind of doing my, my morning routine. And uh, Ella has an alarm clock. We're really fortunate in that our daughter is a rule follower. And she has an owl. And this little owl, um, when you press its little tummy, it says, because um, we've programmed in the back, is, it'll say, go back to sleep now. And then it'll play music if it's not that time. If it's close to that time, it'll say, um, just a little bit longer. And our daughter will sit there and watch the owl. And then there's this moment where the owl's belly turns green. And that's the go. And our daughter leaps out of the bed at the moment that, that like owl glows green and is out the door. So I'm sitting on the couch and I hear the owl like say, it's time to get up now. And all of a sudden I hear... And then the door opens. And I'm sitting on the couch and what I see is my daughter galloping with her little galloping horse across the living room into our bedroom because she thinks we're still in there. Well, my wife happens to be in there, and so Ella comes around the corner like, like, good morning, it's good to see you, I love you. I'm sitting on the couch, and you ever have those moments where whether it's with your spouse or a really good friend or whether your child, and it's just like the, the profoundness of your love hits you? You're like, I love that little girl. Like, if anyone else, if any of you ever came galloping into my room... On a horse. It would not end well. But she gallops in and she stills my heart. And in the midst of this week and just like thinking about that and having this moment where because not only does the girl gallop, but she'll come up to you and say, oh, daddy. And she'll cut my face with her little hand and pull me. You are in there, daddy. I'm like, oh, I'll go back right now. I mean, you're just like this little hand cup that she does just draws you in. In the midst of just working, reading the Bible, processing, journaling, kind of just meditating on what the Bible says, um, I had this moment this week where, man, I just felt like God hit me with this truth. of like, do you know how you look at her? Do you know, do you know, how, you know how you feel when you think about her? Do you know how when she comes out of that room galloping, how your heart feels and it feels like it's about to explode and you didn't even know you had the capacity to think that much about a person. It's like, that's how I feel about you. I love you more than you will ever on your best day love that little girl. You can't manufacture the level of love I have. And I think in moments, quite honestly, let's, let's, you can kind of push back, because I push back on those moments. Say, wait a second, that's too like passionate. That's too intimate. That's too deep. God, that's way too much. And I have to check myself, because I, if, I, if I'm not being careful, what I'm saying is that I believe I love better than God. And I don't. In fact, it's my best moments of love that I am merely reflecting His love. And see, the reason that this is key is that in order to love well, we have to first receive love from Him. We have to recognize that He loves us, period. Which can be quite challenging because love comes with baggage. 
Some of us grew up in homes where you were taught that love was dependent on your performance, your appearance, your abilities, your grades, your salary, the size of your house, who you married. Like you were, you were taught growing up or you caught growing up that your receiving of love was tied to what you did. And that put you on this performance track of love that has completely warped your view of love from even before you remember first hearing the word. And that is a distortion because God doesn't love for who we are. Jesus loved them, period. He dies on the cross for them and for us. Long before we're even born, He's sacrificed on a cross for us. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything we will do. In fact, we will tell our own children, there's nothing you will ever do or can do that will make me love you more or less. And we forget that God Himself demonstrated it on a cross to make the same point. But He did it with His very life and death. When we receive that love and realize that in our brokenness, in our beauty, that we are loved simply for who we are. When we camp out in that it starts to change us and the reason why this matters is because if we don't we will start doing love and relationships the way i grocery shop when i'm hungry that in the midst of this this kind of all-consuming desire i will buy things i regret i will spend more than i ever planned on spending and i will get home and i will wonder and question what in the world was i thinking when i made that choice And it was because it was coming from a deep place that wasn't satisfied. And what happens for many of us is we enter into broken relationships. We repeat cycles of brokenness because we're living out of a place of emptiness and we're just walking through that grocery store grabbing things and we're not grabbing things that are healthy. And that's why some of us find ourselves in relationship after relationship after relationship, whether with our spouse or whether it's mirrored in our kids the same way it was mirrored with us growing up. Just repeating the same cycle. Because we were meant to love out of being loved. Not love to get loved. That's That's the key. Jesus was trying to teach them that the reason love Receiving this love is so powerful is because it gives you freedom to step into any relationship and room and to say, I'm going to love out of a place of fullness, not love to get fullness. Like, I know you complete me as a sweet line to whoever it is that you're dating or you hope to marry, but I walk into my marriage with my body pack already attached. I'm hydrated. I'll wake up in the mornings and I spend time with God. I get that love. So that when my wife wakes up or when we, my daughter gets up, I'm not trying to sap it out of them. And that's, I understand, that's very radical. But that is the Christian distinctive that we love because we've been loved. And that the first key to loving well is receiving that love well. And when we receive it, We have the freedom to do what He commands, right? He says, as I have loved you, so you must love others. He says, my demonstration is now your declaration. What I have done, you go do. Because I've done it to you. I've done it for you. He's like, now this is the command. 
Go in love. Do this. Now here's the critical part. You can't command an emotion. I have a four-year-old little girl. Believe me. You can't command emotions. Stop crying. I can't. I don't know how. Right? Emotions are reactionary. You don't command them. Jesus isn't commanding an emotion. He's commanding an action to a people who've been loved well. And that is a game changer. He's... His love was defined by intentionality and thoughtfulness. It wasn't rooted in emotion. It went beyond emotion. It was stronger than an emotion. It was a choice. It was a commitment. It was a love that was focused on the other. Even in the midst of him knowing he's about to die, his focus is on them. Eleven years ago, and one day, um, I stood before Jenny uh, in this beautiful old church, and we both said our vows. And um, because we just like being different for the sake of being different, I guess, um, I said, let's write our vows. And, um, and so we, we both wrote our vows. And that day, and it was an incredible day, but it's such a blur, like all the friends and family and kind of everything. But there's one thing about that day. There's one thing about that moment that stands out to me. And it was one of the lines that I, I said to her as a promise. Um, I said this. I said, um, I promise to love you until the day that your hand slips out of mine into his. And that when that day happens, that you will have been better because we'll have been together. And that, that, that phrase, that, like that of everything that day, that promise burned into my soul. And even as a family, like we, as the Causeys, we have this thing about understanding that we should leave places better than we found them. When we do Airbnb, when we do hotels, we're that weird couple, weird family who like does the work of the person who's coming in after us. And it's a subtle thing, but we just believe we should leave places better than we found it. But I also believe that love, like I said to my wife that day, that love leaves people better than how you found them. We leave people better because we were together. And most of us, quite honestly, we don't have that experience, do we? We, talk, we think about our breakups, we think about our divorces, we think about the heartbreak, the bullying, and we think how people do not leave us better. They leave us bitter. They leave us broken. Jesus is saying that love, love should leave people better than you found them. That that should be the mark of the Christian life. That we should make sure that if we're loving like Him, that when people talk about us after we've transitioned, whether in our death or in relocation, that they talk about us and they make the statement, I was better because they were in my life. Not necessarily that we came in and they were a project and that we tried to make them better, but just simply because we loved them. We made them better. Because love calls out the best in people, doesn't it? It raises the bar in our life. And I think just tangible ways that we can do this is just, one, it's just to be faithful. Be present. We live in a culture where I, it drives me insane and please forgive me for just being really raw and honest. I want to scream at people when I go to restaurants. And if this offends you, I'm sorry. I, I keep it in myself. 
But when I sit in restaurants and I watch families sitting around the table and no one's talking to each other because they're all on their phones, I think there will be a day where you will wish you didn't have your phone. That we treat those moments like they're not sacred opportunities to show love. And just, I'm saying, in our culture, just being present is powerful. There are moments where I get gut checks because my daughter says to me, Daddy, put down your phone. And I'm like, I am so failing in this moment right now. Because what she needs from me is presence. Because there will be a day where she's not going to say, Daddy, put down your phone. Right? She's going to be like, Daddy, can I have a phone? (laughs) I'm like, no. But those moments of just being present with them, being intentional and focused, engaging with them. Not just telling them you love them, show them you love them. Love languages, I've referenced it multiple times, can be very powerful. Of just learning how they receive love. Physical touch, acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time. Like just doing these distinctive things that they receive love. Gifts of, just gifts. That's my daughter's thing. Man, if I bring her a little tiny trinket, like she just feels loved. You bring me something, I'm going to say, oh, thank you. Kind of indifferent. But man, that little girl gets something from you. She's like, you love me, don't you? And some of us, we we just, all all we need to do to feel loved is somebody squeeze our hand, rub our head if you're me because you're bald and it just feels really good. Or for someone just to say, I I just love, just love being with you. And you're like, oh, I love, I love when people Tell me how much they love me. And the words just build me up. But we have to not just say it. We have to show it. That I think one of the dangers is, especially in parenting or even with coworkers, talking to them, not at them. We treat people like they're projects or to-dos instead of people that God's loved and that have been placed in our life for, for us to love them. That when we do those tiny intentional things, we encourage them with something that's sincere and very specific about a strength they have in their life and we call that out. That we're reflecting a type of love that will leave them better. Because my prayer, what I said to my wife and what I hope for my daughter and what I hope for the church and the friendships that I have the privilege of being part of is that people will say, I'm, I, I was better because we were together. Because there was something different about that love. Because here's the power. It's not just in the receiving it. And then in the moment of receiving it, then you can begin to reflect it and you leave people better. I think even beyond that, there's this beautiful picture of what happens when you and I start to do this as individuals and we start to do it cumulatively in this corporate level. Jesus says in 35, he says, in fact, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's like, look, when people talk about the church, when people talk about what I've started here tonight in this room, when people talk about it, what they will say about this thing is how well you love. That the defining trait of the church that enthralled me after I became a Christian in college was the way Jesus called His people, His followers, to a higher standard of life and love. That I really... Part of me, I'm a pastor today because I was captured by this picture of the church that Jesus shared with His followers. And I recognize that some of us have had negative experiences 
with churches. And some of us bring baggage of really horrible moments or negative experiences from past church experiences. But can I just candidly push back? None of us stopped eating because we had a bad meal. All right? And the fact that it was bad and it didn't satisfy you deep down inside is not a judgment about the meal itself and food in general. It was just an indication of the type of food you were eating that moment. And when Jesus calls His disciples to this picture of love and serving, He's calling us to be the church and to live it out. And I want to apologize. If you had a negative experience with church growing up, I'm sorry. It breaks God's heart. But the church is filled with imperfect people and sometimes, you've probably picked this up, people do stupid stuff. But that doesn't mean that the church doesn't have to be this. That, and so when we, as part of a church about 20 minutes away, and that many of the families that helped to start Encounter Church, um, we were captured by this idea of the church being a church that loves and serves where they are. Because we believe, when we look at what Jesus said, that a church isn't defined by its where or the what of its building. It's defined by the who and how it loves. That that's the mark. Jesus didn't say, the world will know you're my disciples by the grand steeples that you have. Or the beautiful stained glass windows. Nothing against those. He says that the mark of the church will be how you love. And so there were a number of families who were attending a church about 20 minutes away who said, let's be a group of people who love and serve the communities that we live or work in. Instead of being part of a community that's a church that's kind of so distantly separated from where we do life, let's do it closer to what we call home. And that's why as a church, you've seen us serve our community. Some of you are in here today because of a community event we've done. And you heard us say then, and this is why, that we believe a church should be known for what they do for a community, not what they take from. That's why over 300 people showed up last night to, uh, to a, just a, an outdoor movie experience. Because they've learned that we're not trying to trick them into religion. If anything, we're trying to push people away from religion. We just want to love and serve and be that expression of love that Jesus has called us to be. And so we can do community events. It's why next month uh, we will be leveraging our relationships both here and even nationally and engaging with hundreds of students from all around America to come and serve Dedham and to do community service projects. Just because we believe a church should be known for what they do for a community because love does. Period. And that while it may be that we sound like we're a new thing, we quite honestly believe there's nothing new about us. That we take our marching orders from this simple command that Jesus gave His disciples that night in that room right before He was murdered. To love. It's why we do what we do. It's why when we came into this community and we looked at where we're going to rent, we decided to rent at the middle school instead of some other place. Because we believed, man, we can make $50,000 contribution just through renting the middle school for a year. Let's give to our community. Let's benefit the community with no strings attached. Just say, hey, here's $50,000 as part of our rental agreement. Make education better. 
We, we don't have any strings. We just believe a church should be known for what they do for a community. It's why every single Sunday, if you walk in, you see people serving. You see people with orange shirts and blue shirts. You see there are people who are here before you come, and there will be people here after you leave. It's because we believe love does. We believe in serving because we were served and loved first. It's what guides us because at the end of the day, we believe the love we're called to have is a consequence, not the cause of God's love for us. That we love out of being loved, not so that we can be loved. And that incredibly powerful motivation of receiving God's love and then intentionally daily reflecting God's love orders our steps every single day.